Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I, I firstly want to just apologise for the frog in my throat. Um, just excuse me for that in advance. But really, it's, it's my very great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, the General Secretary of the British Trades Union Congress, Francis O'Grady. Frances O'Grady has been an active trade unionist all her working life. After working in a range of jobs, she um, began working for the Transport and General Workers' Union and was involved in a variety of successful campaigns concerning the minimum wage, uh, the wage setting system for agricultural workers, questions of equal pay for women and, and others as well. And then in 1994, she was appointed TUC campaign officer. Later on, she launched the Organising Academy and became the, subsequently the head of the organisational department of the TUC. And then in 2003, she was elected um, Deputy General Secretary. In 2013, she was elected General Secretary, and as I'm sure you all know, was the first woman to hold that top post in the British trade union movement. Um, Frances also is a graduate of Manchester University and has a postgraduate diploma in, uh, I think, industrial relations or trade, trade, unions, trade unions studies. Um, and she's been a member of various inquiries like the Low Pay Commission um, and worked with people like the Resolution Foundation. Well, um, you know, for well over a century, the labour movement has been absolutely central to the hopes of progressives and, and the fears of conservatives. And um, it's been a great engine, arguably the greatest engine of social and political change in Britain over that time as a whole. So it's a matter of high importance to hear what Frances has to say today. She's going to talk for about 40 minutes or so and then we'll have plenty of time for questions and discussion. But can you join me in welcoming our speaker, Frances O'Grady. Thanks very much, Robin, and thanks to you for coming. Um, it is a real honour to be invited to give one of the Ralph Miliband lectures, and at a time when I find it absolutely tantalising to wonder what Ralph would have made of today's Labour Party, its leadership, and its prospects. Um, it's no secret that Ralph gave up his own membership of the party in the 1960s, unconvinced that Labour could deliver real progress on the socialist cause that he held so dear. Since then, there have been plenty of attempts to uh, launch alternative mass workers' parties, and none of them have succeeded on a mass basis. Um, and few, I think, uh, could question the radical credentials of the new current leader, Jeremy Corbyn, in fact, following the leadership election, an unnamed serving army general was reported in the press as being so alarmed that he threatened a military mutiny should Jeremy become prime minister. The general's remarks were rightly widely condemned as an affront to democracy. Although the Ministry of Defence, when pressed for comment, uh, had a somewhat less robust response. According to the MOD spokesman, the general's threat of a military coup was, and I quote, not helpful. 
So I don't know whether Ralph would have been one of the thousands who have rejoined Labour since the election, but I wouldn't have been surprised if at the very least we would have seen him addressing meetings of momentum. He may also um, have had something to say about the current media storm, about allegations of anti-Semitism. Ralph knew more than most of us ever will about the horrors of Nazism and, of course, the Holocaust. Famously, he and his father escaped it, but other members of his family did not. Ralph was a committed Marxist and socialist, but I have no doubt that his own experience would have taught him that prejudice and discrimination is not confined to those who rule us. Racism can take many forms, unconscious as well as conscious, coded remarks as well as crude hate crimes. And as we've seen all too vividly in the election campaign for London Mayor, it sometimes involves dog whistles and dead cats too. Now, I never met Ralph, but I like to think that he would have encouraged the left in Britain to keep the courage of our convictions, not to flinch from our uh, commitment to international solidarity, but always to stay on our guard against racism, including anti-Semitism. As a movement of all faiths and none, we must have the humility to study history, to analyse it, to listen and learn from each other, and to nurture our common humanity. That, I think, is uh, particularly the case in what is a critical period, one full of hope and danger in equal measure. Now, tonight I want to talk to you about the subject that defined Ralph's writings and indeed his life, and that is the complex and ever-shifting struggle between the state, capital and class. I want to explore how that thinking applies to organised labour in the 21st century and in the context of an economy which is enriching too few and failing too many and all under a Conservative government, which as its very first act, tried to use the full power of the state to crush trade unions and the people we represent. I also want to describe why we need to change and what that change should look like and how we can make it a reality. But first, just a word about context. Now, Ralph was part of that post-war generation who built our welfare state, our homes, and delivered an NHS and education for the masses. Ralph had served in the Royal Navy during the war, something we must take every opportunity to remind our good friend, the editor of the Daily Mail, Paul Dacre of. That generation emerged from the war demanding dignity and decency for the working class. They showed what the power of unity and collective action could achieve. And I was part of the generation that benefited. Within one generation, my family's life had been transformed by free health care, a council home, a car parked outside, and a comprehensive education. Without doubt, we and millions like us had got above our station. The 1970s was not only Britain's most equal decade, it is officially the one when most people were most happy. 
Union membership was widespread and delivered real gains too, not just in pay and conditions, but in opportunities for leadership through self-education, self-confidence and self-respect. With money in our pockets and jobs aplenty, working-class people could afford to bite back, safe in the knowledge that the boss needed you more than you needed them. And what's more, the boss's teenage children, more than likely, listened to music made by working-class kids, copied our fashion and even adopted our accents. Perhaps for the first time in history, they really wanted to be like us. Now, the 1970s were the apex of progress on many fronts, um, and in a 20th century of progress, notwithstanding the setbacks. Over that century, working hours were cut, pay and conditions improved, workers enjoyed more rights, there was more equality, and working people saw their share of the national wealth that we all produce grow. The historian Eric Cobsbourne called it the forward march of labour. Now, much of this was the result of deliberate policy choices, new laws on pensions, on holidays and equal pay, and a conscious decision to level the playing field more towards organised labour. Of course, progress was probably at its most dramatic during the post-war Keynesian uh, years, uh, when even conservative governments fell into line with the dominant social democratic consensus. And then came the oil crisis, and from the late 70s onwards, the new right was in charge and driven by a very different set of beliefs. With Margaret Thatcher in office in this country, Ronald Reagan installed in the White House, employers were given greater freedoms. Taxes for the rich were cut, financial regulation lifted, traditional industries were trashed or left to die, and trade unions came under sustained attack. Whether it was the air traffic controllers in the US or the miners in Britain, the full force of the state was deployed against them. And any graph you care to look at that charts the decline of trade union membership and, of course, collective bargaining coverage will show how that is mirrored by rising inequality. So let's fast forward through the greed is good 80s uh, into the financial crash and on to 2016 and the long-term consequences of neoliberalism are plain for everyone to see. Britain like the US is more unequal than at any point in our history. More and more of our national wealth is flowing into corporate profits and offshore trust funds of the super-rich. Top bosses and bankers often earn more in a single day than workers will earn in a whole year. Jobs are increasingly insecure, and one in five working people in Britain do not earn enough to live on. So now, at a time when a generation of young people are growing up to be worse off than their parents, it feels like we're going backwards. Not content with attacking our organisations, the government is seeking to expropriate our political culture too. The Conservative government, uh, party rather, has rebranded itself as the Workers' Party. And in a case of naked intellectual property theft, 
they nicked the TUC's slogan, Britain needs a pay rise. Some of their policies, whether that's on the so-called living wage or forcing employers to pay a training levy, need to be seen through that prism. Now, I don't propose to dwell on austerity or the deeply regressive welfare reforms or tax cuts for corporation, because frankly, we'd be here all night. But what I will say is that the government's programme has shifted the balance of power even further against working people. Now, as regards unions, some of, this, uh, some of these government proposals would make even Margaret Thatcher blush. The trade union bill, which it's very timely we're here today, which received royal assent today, was not just an attack on unions, but by attacking the right to strike, it was a fundamental attack on the civil liberties that people enjoy in this country. The International Labour Organization has said that the government's plans to let employers use agency staff to break strikes um, is likely to be in contravention of those conventions. The former head of the civil service, Bob Kerslake, described the bill as authoritarian and partisan. And even Bruce Carr QC, who you may remember was the government's own advisor on uh, trade unions, said that it threatens human rights. Now, I'm very proud of what is a very, very broad and deep campaign led by the TUC and unions against what is a very draconian bill, that we were able to roundly defeat the government in the Lords and that we've been able to secure some important concessions. So the government had to back off their plans to attack our funds by banning Chekhov. They had to back off their plans to gag us by attacking our political funds and their proposals to criminalise pickets, including that what was always, I thought, a bizarre um, proposal that appeared on the face of the bill, that pickets would have to wear armbands, that has been consigned to the dustbin of history too. Now, the bill may be a shadow of its former self, but what's left is still pretty vicious and still designed to make it harder for unions to fight workplace injustice. That is not the only front that we have open uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, in, well, the next few weeks, we face as a trade union movement another big watershed moment with the EU referendum now <coughs> just 50 days away. On this one, the Conservative Party is, shall we say, less united. And the media's obsession with this blue-on-blue -blue battle is getting pretty boring for the rest of us. Uh, much of the media seems to characterise the referendum as a battle between two gigantic old Etonian egos. On the one hand, we have a Leave campaign fronted by Boris, funded by hedge funds and dominated by posh businessmen in suits. And on the other hand, we have a Remain campaign fronted by Dave, part funded by the American banks and dominated by posh businessmen in suits. For workers, I think, uh, in many cases, it's a case of spot the difference. But the TUC's job is to figure out what is in the best interests of workers 
and our General Council's position is clear. A Brexit would pose a real threat to investment, to jobs, to livelihoods and to rights. Rights that we all rely on and that collective union agreements build on. Maternity rights, help for working parents, redundancy consultation so we get the time and space to put forward alternatives, information on consultation rights, stronger health and safety laws, anti-discrimination measures uh, and protection for outsourced workers, equal treatment for part-timers, temps and agency workers, not to mention the Working Time Directive, which improved, uh, when it was first introduced, improved the pays holidays of six million workers in Britain, including two million who had <laughs> never had paid holidays before. Now, these rights weren't gifted by Brussels bureaucrats. They were fought for by unions, combining our strength across borders. But a leave vote would put all those rights at risk because if we left Europe, what are the odds on a Conservative government protecting those hard-won rights? Frankly, I'd rather bet on the junior doctors crowning Jeremy Hunt as their personality of the year. Remember, this administration has already shown its appetite to attack workers' rights, whether that's doubling the qualification period for protection against unfair dismissal or through the trade union bill. So the TUC and the unions that make up the bulk of our combined membership, we don't believe the EU is perfect, far from it, but we are clear that we want to fight for a better Europe alongside our sister unions from the inside, not out. It's worth, I think, just pausing and thinking a bit about why the Conservative Party has such a problem with Europe. I know that when Ralph Miliband first arrived in Britain, he famously noted rabid British nationalism and, uh, in particular, contempt for the French. Uh, but I don't think that can explain it. After all, one of the leading lights of the Brexit campaign is Nigel Lawson, and he lectures us on why we should leave the EU from his residence in a large country pile in the southwest of France, a case of I'm all right, Jacques. Uh, so for all that Conservatives in both the Remain and the Leave campaigns bang on about British sovereignty on the one hand or needing to renegotiate so that we take back control of our country, I'm not sure that's what really drives them. After all, they're quite happy for foreign companies to own huge swathes of our domestic industry and buy up much of London's housing stock. For European governments to run our trains, our buses and our power plants, for China to dump its steel and for the City of London to become our very own onshore tax haven. Now, I think what really riles them are what they describe as burdens from Brussels, the rights and regulations that not only benefit workers but protect consumers and the environment too. EU checks and balances to unfettered power, particularly of the hedge fund variety, because I think this is the new class war. Ralph Miliband argued in the State in Capitalist Society that pluralism does not necessarily spread political power. 
as he put it, in an epoch when so much is made of democracy, equality, social mobility, classlessness and the rest, it's remained a basic fact of life that the vast that in advanced capitalist countries, that the vast majority of men and women in these countries have been governed, represented, administered, judged, and commanded in war by people drawn from other economically superior and relatively distant classes. Based on the current evidence, I think we can confirm he was right. While the old establishment is still alive and kicking, Economic power increasingly resides with a new elite, a global elite. Hedge fund managers, city bankers, media barons, captains of industry, property moguls, tech entrepreneurs. These are the new captains of 21st century global capitalism. They inhabit a very different world from the 99%. They bankroll politicians and political parties who represent their economic interests. And as the recent disclosures in the Panama Papers reveal, they don't play by the same rules as the rest of us. I want to move on to another big challenge that the left uh, collectively needs to get our heads around because uh, communications and technological innovation is unleashing a new wave of creative destruction across the economy. We're in the midst of a revolution arguably many times more transformative than its industrial namesake. So far, the headlines have been dominated by driverless cars, pilotless aircraft, delivery drones, 3D printing, artificial intelligence, robots performing surgery and all the rest of it. But just as important are the more run-of-the-mill changes. And I think we're all familiar with self-service kiosks, checkouts, online shopping, banking, uh, booking holidays and hotels, and what all that has meant for retail workers, bank uh, cashiers, travel agents and others. But automation and apps are not just transforming the jobs people do and the way that they work. They're also accelerating what's been described as the gig economy. Instead of permanent contracts with guaranteed pay hours and holidays and pensions, workers are increasingly self-employed and take whatever gig they can get. For the lucky few, that might mean genuine freedom. But for the majority, it means uh, freedom to be exploited. The Uber driver competing for the next fare, the city sprint <coughs> courier paid for each drop-off rather than by the hour, the sports direct or care industry worker on zero hours waiting for the text to confirm the next shift. It may come, it may not. Take the case of the company called Deliveroo, a new business that brings food from restaurants direct to your door. It's not an amateur concern, and it's certainly not a small one. It's got operations in Holland, France, Germany, Belgium, Ireland, Spain, Italy, Dubai, Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Here in Britain, Deliveroo will bring you gourmet food of your choice for just a £2.50 fee. Now, how do you think those figures stack up? Well, workers have to supply their own transport and most of the fuel. And in London, that's in London, the firm pays them £7.20 an hour 
plus £1 for each delivery. Now, the company claims that a driver could earn up to £3,500 per month in this way. Really? The journalist Stefan Stern has calculated that if true, to earn that amount of money, that would mean making 250 deliveries, which would mean a minimum of an 80-hour week. And then you'd have to be getting some whopping big tips into the bargain. But it's not just low-paid blue-collar workers who are feeling the force of disruptive technology and insecurity. We've seen it with airline pilots, with university lecturers, teachers, journalists too. They're all discovering uh, that casualization doesn't discriminate uh, by the color of your collar. All of this has profound implications for trade unions and the way that we organize and how we build bargaining power. So what are the answers? Well, for our part, the TUC has been pushing for a new economy. In place of financial and property speculation, we want a smart industrial strategy with great jobs and strong rights at its heart. We want root and branch reform of the finance sector, a new state investment bank. We want corporate governance reform to give workers voice and tackle short-term greed and we want tax justice. And notwithstanding state plagiarism, Britain still needs a pay rise. But over and above this, I believe there are three uh, key priorities for us. Firstly, we need to renew and reinvent trade unionism. In many ways, it's remarkable that trade union membership has remained as resilient as it has. But capital has changed and so must we. Just one in 12 workers under the age of 25 holds a union card, something that we are currently in the midst of planning a major new initiative to address. What's very clear is that the problem is not so much that the uh, millennial generation is anti-union, it's that they are very heavily concentrated in those parts of the economy where unions are weakest. But that's not good enough because there should be no no no-go zones for our movement. We've got to be there for young people in the shops, in the bars, in the hotels, restaurants and call centres that are more likely to employ them. And it can be done. A couple of years ago, young workers at the Ritzy Cinema chain in Brixton organised took 13 days of strike action for a living wage and won a 12% pay rise. So there's no rule that says that trade unions can't win for young people in private sector services. And a big part of the challenge that we face will be engaging young workers in that new gig economy. As Gavin Kelly from the Resolution Trust put it, In time, new forms of protection and worker organisation will be needed. Just as business faces an imperative to innovate, so too do those who believe in social protection. He argues that the default mindset of UK unions is still too often defend and save rather than innovate and build. And I tend to agree. Trade unions need to think creatively about new forms of membership 
new forms of organisation, new ways of supporting workers who have few rights and very often no formal employer, and new ways of exploiting too what is huge organising and bargaining potential through the use of digital technology. Employers sometimes forget that the very same technology that allows them to source cheaper labour, say, in India, also allows unions representing British and Indian workers to find out how much each other earns. And of course, while inequality within countries is rising, wages around the world are converging. It may be slow, but it's happening. And that reduces the scope of employers to pit worker against worker. We can also learn from innovation elsewhere. Look at the campaign for pay justice in the US fast food industry in companies like McDonald's and KFC. The Fight for 15 campaign has a straightforward message. Thousands of workers, hundreds of cities, one movement, $15 an hour, and a union. It scored successes in New York and California, winning the biggest increases in the pay floor since Harry Truman uh, nearly doubled the minimum wage in the 1950s. And it's feeding into other organising campaigns, such as our Walmart, Domestic Workers United and Warehouse Workers for Justice. While it's early days, the union message is beginning to resonate with low-paid American private sector workers and creating a broad civic society alliance in their support. And there's no reason why that can't happen here. Look, too, at some of the embryonic, as I would call them, uh, unions developed by unpaid interns, or the shared spaces and collectives being built by young creatives, or the online networks that link atomized workers from airline pilots to deep-sea divers. If it feels like trade unionism, it can become trade unionism. It's our existing structures and cultures that need to change for the digital age. Our second key priority must be to build a new solidarity between working class and middle class uh, workers against the interests of the new financial class. Since coming into power in coalition in 2010, the Conservatives have undertaken a pretty audacious rewriting of history, and for that matter, <coughs> economics. Blame public spending for the deficit, not the financial crash. Present austerity as an act of economic necessity, not a political choice to shrink the state. And vilify the poor and migrants, not the bankers and the super-rich. It may have been a winning formula, but I sense that it's running out of steam witnessed the series of spectacular government U-turns that we've had recently. And let's not forget, especially uh, for a movement that will now be facing these double thresholds for any ballot we run, that only 24% of those entitled to vote actually voted for this government's party. And even those who voted for them didn't necessarily really like them or trust them. There's growing anger, too, that there appears to be one rule for the vast majority of ordinary people, whether working class or middle class, and no rules for those at the top. Since the crash, 
The latest Sunday Times Rich List reveals the wealth of the richest 1,000 families has more than doubled. Uh, Compare that to what's happened to most workers. The scale of tax avoidance, not just by the rich individuals, but corporate giants, is frankly breathtaking. And every pound of tax dodged by Amazon, Google and the rest is a pound less for our schools, hospitals and councils. And finally, there's frustration that for all the rhetoric we hear about a meritocracy, um, which I happen to believe was always a dodgy concept, social mobility has gone into reverse. Arguably, class and, and privilege are more entrenched now than when I was a girl. Getting a top job in the judiciary, the civil service or the media uh, depends on class background and a private education, who you know, not what you know. And it's not just working class people who are being left behind to learn to labour. Middle class families are increasingly shut out of what are seen as uh, uh, the last closed shops in Britain, saddled with student debts, spiralling housing costs and insecure jobs. Now the Occupy movement may have fizzled out, But its slogan, the 1% versus the 99%, I think still resonates. And this takes me on to what must be our third key priority, to build a new political movement for change. As uh, Ralph Miliband might have called it, a new left. While building a broad front against the financial elites is all very well and good, we need a new politics to drive it too. Those who were disappointed by the result of uh, Labour's leadership contest would do well to reflect on why party members felt so strongly that Labour's core mission needed revitalising. Again, I sense opportunities for change. Across the developed world, traditional models of party politics are in flux. So far, the spotlight has been largely on the right, Here in Britain, UKIP won almost 4 million votes at last year's election, largely by appealing to working-class voters left behind by global economic change. In Austria, Hungary, Poland, the far right has enjoyed alarming levels of electoral success. And of course, on the other side of the Atlantic, Donald Trump has ridden a wave of working-class anger despite the fact that his political prospectus is basically diametrically opposed to those workers' interests. But I do detect uh, a new left emerging in Europe and even in the US, rooted in traditional values of social justice and fairness, but perhaps more ready to address the realities of the modern global economy and labour market. In this country, the Labour Party is going through the painful, but I think probably necessary, process of rejecting the economics of austerity and rediscovering its political core ambition. In my view, Ed Miliband deserves credit for reminding Labour that its core mission is to tackle inequality at source by shaping the economy rather than just trying to mop up the mess it leaves with an ever-shrinking pool of public resources. Crucially, young people are very often at the forefront of this new progressive politics. After all, 
they have very little to lose. So yes, it's early days, but people who dismiss all of this as a blip, who believe that the old political order will inevitably reassert itself, could find themselves on the wrong side of history. If this new discourse brings together the vast bulk of working people who are being failed by neoliberalism, young and old, men and women, uh, black and white, working class and middle class, and if it does so in a politically savvy, electorally appealing way, then change really could be within our grasp. So uh, I want to finish with this, that I don't doubt the scale of the challenge facing organized labor and the left. But uh, I am optimistic. I think that brick by brick, we can begin to dismantle the architecture of neoliberalism and lay the foundations uh, of a more equal future, more sustainable, more secure, peaceful, humane, just, that's what inspired Ralph Miliband, and I think it's what can inspire millions of ordinary people. And if we stick together, if we organize together, then, as always, I believe together we will win. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks very much for that. <laughs> We've got a good chunk of time now for questions and discussions, so um, do just indicate if you would like to start us off. And um, could you just say who you are and where you're from so everyone knows? Uh, thank you, Francis. Uh, I'm an ID worker who is working in banking now, but I'm, I used to study in university in London. My question is two of them. I think um, I... When I was studying university, I feel a noti very noticeable absence of where I expect, hopefully, to engage with a trade union, but it isn't there. It's just the careers office. There are a lot of uh, you know publications that teach uh, you know you know students their rights, their you know looking looking out for the good practices. But I struggle to find a brochure that is published by a union. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think I think it's a good. Whereabouts? At the careers office. In which university? Imperial College London. Oh, Imperial, okay. Yeah, so I, I think, I mean, these days uh, when graduates go, uh, often use the careers office, you know, to arrange mock, mock interview and, and pick up all those um, books of all those, uh, you know, companies. I think it would be very good to, to, to engage with graduates at, at that point in time. And second, my question is, I mean, in this era where, uh, you know, Everyone can pay just three quid to become a Labour supporter and and vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be Labour leader. Why can't we have a service which we can just you know text and get and get and pay three pound and be a Labour and, and be a union member of our choice? Why isn't this option there? Is this is it legally not allowed or or something? Because if this is possible, it will certainly be very well. Let's say. I would can foresee it would be very easy to broaden the participation. I mean, these days, when you can tax and give to charity, well, three pounds maybe. Why can't you do that to join a union? Why? Thank you very much. Should I take it? Yeah, no, I think just oh, one by one. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Uh, well, thanks for that, because I'm going to be on to Imperial and <laughs> make sure that we sort that problem out. Um, we have, we have a, an agreement with the National Union of Students, and um, we've uh, tried to make sure that information is available, but uh, it's a good little reality test on whether this is working. But, it, yeah, well, yeah, but, you know, we keep on keeping on. Um, and I think also that perhaps some of the best examples of uh, that relationship between the TUC and, the, and NUS, because after all, so many students are working now too, is when uh, we, it's become practical in organizing campaigns, including, I think, credit is due to the NUS for some brilliant campus living wage campaigns where the unions and NUS have worked together to ensure that everybody on campus gets paid at least the living wage, and we've scored some real victories on that. Um, uh, your question on if you can do it for the Labour Party, why can't you do it in terms of trade unionism is a very, very good question that I want to provide an answer to through the course of the um, initiative that we're taking on young workers, but it will have implications for all workers. It, it's, it's worth understanding unions only work because we have people who are prepared to be active in them. And what makes us different to any other movement is we're inside the workplace and our aim is to bargain with employers. We're, you know, we're the only independent membership organisations of workers who can bargain with employers. Now, that's what we do and that's what I, I want to spread. But in the meantime... I share what I suspect is your feeling. What are we going to do? Turn our back on all those workers where we haven't got recognition, where we haven't got a negotiated deal, where it's very hard to get reps. Uh, what are we going to do? So I think we have to go back to the beginning, just as we've done many times in our history, and we need to figure it out, and we need to be prepared to take a few risks, do things differently. We have to be honest with people, uh, you are not, for your three quid, going to get a Royals Voice service of a full-time officer coming down every time, you know, uh, you've got a little problem at work. We can't, we can't. We're, you know, we're a membership organisation. But I think there's plenty that we could do and that we can also do to link workers up together to support each other in new ways. Um, there's quite a lot of thinking going on around this, so watch this space. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, so the lady in green, just wait for the microphone and, and do say who you are and where you're from. <laughs> Is this working? Uh, oh, it's closer, sorry, to your mouth. A little bit close to your mouth. Well, before, without swallowing it, I can't get much nearer. <laughs> Uh, now, the TUC has done wonderful work, and particularly the period uh, before the Second World War is part of my studies. And when I heard that the TUC uh, had a lady, a woman, a general secretary, not only was I astonished, but I was delighted. 
Now, I'm middle class, and we people in the middle classes feel totally left out because we are workers, but we're workers with no help, and I and a number of my friends say exactly the same. If you have a trouble with a boss, along comes a mail from the uh, union to confront a male boss, and they don't want to do it, and they don't do it. Now, we are workers too. I've worked all my life, and I'm retired, and I'm still working. So I would like to see the TUC a little less hooked on pre-war workers who were very badly treated very often and poorly paid, but not always, and start moving towards looking after all workers. Now, I may be middle class, but I do not have uh, lots of money. I'm not in the high ranks of the Conservative Party. I don't even vote for them, but then I don't vote for the Labour Party either because I don't feel the slightest bit uh, part of the Labour Party because I am not a physical worker from before the war. However, having said that bit, which is also a suggestion that the TUC might start looking after all workers, because what happens is when some of the people from the bottom, and I know one or two of them, uh, move into the middle classes, they leave the TUC. They aren't interested anymore. It's not doing anything for them. Now, to the question that I have to ask... That would be good, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought I'd get my bit in before I ask the question. I would like to know what you've been doing about uh, a reasonable balance of pay. Now, one of the reasons why we have so few nurses is that after three years college, they are paid 20500 Teachers, after... Uh, four, four years at university are paid £22.500. Uh, I believe the doctors have paid about 25 Consequently, I'm very concerned about my grandchildren because there are 35 unqualified teachers uh, in our schools. And it, it just appalls me. Not to mention what might happen to my mother if she goes into hospital in her 90s. So I would like to ask you, what have you been doing? Because why is a teacher or a nurse paid twenty and twenty-two thousand when my bus driver starts at twenty-eight thousand? Okay, so we've got nurses, <laughs> bus drivers. Not to mention all the people on forty and fifty thousand. Yeah. I think there's quite a lot of themes to deal with there. Perhaps you could choose. <laughs> well, uh, well, I like to think hmm. that unions do try and do something. This is our bread and butter, is to try and improve people's pay and conditions. Um, But clearly, different groups of workers have uh, different degrees of bargaining power, and those who have been unfortunate enough to have the coalition and then this government as essentially, effectively, their employer or setting the budget for their wages have had their pay capped for a very, very long time. But this is true across the board. Um, uh, What we've done about it is the first thing you have to do is organise workers. Um, And the bigger we get, the stronger we all get, because as long as the boss can go across the road to get workers who are cheaper, uh, we're all worse off. Um, We've, in terms of the TUC, as I mentioned, we've been uh, running our big campaigns, drawing attention to the 
big issue, which is, yes, there may be differences between nurses and teachers and doctors, but, come on, the big issue here is that the average top director is now on 183 <coughs> times what the average worker gets. And that gap has grown and grown and grown. And workers' living standards have still not recovered from the crash. So, you know, there, there is a very, very big challenge for all of us. But in the end, as trade unionists, we know the only way we can try and tackle it is not just to join a union, but get active in it and be strong. Ultimately, that's why we've been trying to protect the right to strike, because we know if we don't have that right, then what boss is ever going to bother to bargain with us? Okay. Um, I'll take this gentleman here, first of all. Right, thank you much. Uh, John Newham, um, I'm a member of the ACL, which is affiliated to the TUC, but not the Labour Party. And my question is on Labour Party organisation, because it seems to me there's been a, a form of retreat as far as the trade unions are concerned. For example, you no longer have uh, sponsored uh, members of Parliament, and of course last year we moved to one person, one vote for the leadership. So my question is, for how long, how much longer do you feel that the trade unions will continue to have 50% of the vote at the Labour Party conference, which of course is itself significantly less than it was <coughs> 20, 30 years ago? Well, as you know, the TUC isn't affiliated to the Labour Party either, although we created it. <laughs> um, and uh, clearly share a lot of values. I mean, on the, on the rules of the Labour Party, that's going to be a debate that uh, members of the Labour Party have to ha have. Uh, but what I, my own view is very clear, that I think uh, that link between unions and the Labour Party is very important. It needs to be cherished and it needs, if anything, strengthening. And uh, perhaps some of the problems that uh, social democratic parties around Europe in particular have struggled with is becoming so distant from the real lives and the real concerns of working people and also the organising capacity of uh, trade unions too. So I think it should be uh, a link that is cherished. But I think it... I also think, uh, if you like, both wings of the movement need to have a sense of that joint mission for social and economic justice and an ambitious programme to deliver it. Uh, and perhaps that's been lacking a bit too in recent years. Yes, so um, this gentleman here at the front. Just wait for the... Great, thanks. Um, thank you for that lecture. That was very inspiring. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm a former uh, LSU student. Um, so I'm a millennial, um, and um, I think, speaking of myself and also people in my sort of social circle, one of the things that I think turns us off from the idea of unions per se is the perhaps mistaken notion that they're somehow anti-innovation. By that, what I mean is you spoke a little bit about services like Uber or uh, Deliveroo, which are clearly not good for in terms of uh, of, of uh, what they provide for their workers. Um, however, I think 
well, this is certainly my view. I don't know if it's indubitable, but in, in any case, a view of many people is that they have increased the living standards of most people greatly. Um, so I think there is a, a, a bit of a paradox there because on the one hand, people like myself, for example, are the ones that suffer the most from the lack of... Um, of stable jobs, for example, and or zero-hour contracts. On the other hand, this is also the way that the whole world seems to be moving, the direction the whole world seems to be moving into. So I was wondering, as a general secretary of the trade union, how do you view your role in that changing reality? Because what happened in the Industrial Revolution, for example, was the same thing. A lot of people were out of a job because they weren't skilled for the demands of a new labor market. Um, yeah, so yeah. that's it. Thank you. Well, I, I, I think fair cop on some of that in, t <laughs> in terms of, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of the trade union movement. And if you look at our history, we've been through kind of real waves of, uh, from craft trade unionism to industrial trade unionism, mass trade unionism, when really it was women and young people often leading those struggles and then kind of getting organized in factories, blue collar trade unionism, then white collar trade unionism. So... And, of course, today, our, uh, women are more likely to be union members than men. So, you know, it's changed. It's changed. Uh, but we... I'd like us to be ahead of the curve sometimes uh, and not just following what's happening. And what I can see very clearly is the way that the economy is changing, ways of working, the jobs we have, the contracts we have, is all changing. Now, I don't, I don't think our job is to be King Canute and say, you know, we don't want any technological change or innovation. On the contrary, I think we have to get in there and say, this is how we create what in our language we call a just transition. Uh, our job is to make sure that, uh, that technology can be liberating for workers too. In fact, there's a lot of boring jobs that people still do. I don't want to defend people having to work in boring jobs. I want to look at ways of making those jobs better and richer for people. Um, so uh, in every sense. Uh, so I, I agree with you on that point of criticism, but I think there is a genuine enthusiasm uh, for addressing it. And I've forgotten what actually your question was. Sorry. The Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the best, the best way of keeping us on our toes <coughs> is to be out there talking to workers. You know, the, one of the real risks in any organisations is that they can be run with people whose intelligence about what was really happening out there comes from 20 years ago. And, um, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm uh, putting a big premium on this new initiative about the development of youth leadership as well, because actually we... You know, again, we're democratic organisations. We have to hear from young people what, it, what their experience of work is and what their ideas are uh, for shifting our cultures on as trade union organisations. We're only products of the people who are in them, you know. So, um, so we need more young people to make sure that we're ahead of the game and to lead us, not just follow. So... Uh, I mean, I, I feel optimistic, actually, because I, I detect a, a real appetite. Um, and I think we have got some good victories we can point to. It's just the scale of it. We've got to do this much faster and on a much bigger
bigger scale and be prepared to experiment. Yeah, please. Uh, this is sort of giving an example because I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure if we understood each other. I think, yeah. Sorry. Thank you. My question was more, for example, you have Uber, that is a very sort of controversial. Um, it took over essentially what was uh, the cab driver's jobs. Um, so I can, I assume from a, a trade union perspective, what happened to the livelihood of cab drivers is probably un- unforgivable or a disaster. I don't know. And then, but then from, from the perspective of someone who's not a cab driver, then that was actually a massive liberation of the market and a good thing for me as a consumer. So I guess this is sort of the disconnect that I'm talking about. Sorry, my question. That well, clear. except that, uh, so we're organizing Uber workers. Uh, and uh, I'm sure, as you'll be aware, and I'm sure as a consumer, you would not want this to be true, that many of those drivers are not even getting the minimum wage equivalent and certainly not their rest breaks and everything else. Why? Because they are classified as self-employed. This is one of those occasions where we say, is that a real choice of self-employment or is that an easy way for this global corporate giant to strip workers of the rights that come with having worker or employee status? I think I'm clear about the answer. Um, And you see it on building sites, you see it in FE colleges, you see it all over the place, that kind of way of taking rights away from people. So what we're doing is organising the workers and we are taking a case through the courts and we're prepared to go all the way to say these workers are not genuinely self-employed, they should be treated as workers. And that means these are all the rights that they should get. Now, I think, in fact, a lot of the people who use Uber don't necessarily know how those workers are being treated. And I think, in fact, if we pull together our organising work, our campaign strategy, our legal case, and people who use, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling for a boycott, but let's use our collective voices to say, this isn't right, and it needs to change. And then the more we bring up their standards, uh, I think we'll find that Uber um, may not be, uh, I, mean, I don't know if you know what's happened in Brazil and other countries where there have been huge popular campaigns against Uber and the way that its business model works. That's what we're challenging, its business model. And, you know, it's fine, it's good to offer a new technology and a great service, but don't do it on the back of exploiting workers. You don't need to. And if we raise the standards for everybody, they, you know, there are lots of good companies who don't want to be undercut by the bad either. So we've got the potential for a very big, broad campaign, I think. Yes, this woman at the back with the red scarf. Um, when you speak about engaging like the younger audience, the millennials, if you want to call them that, um, do you, so when, when many of those um, young people go to university, not all of them, but some of them, if their university is part of the NUS, they get automatically signed up. Do you think that waters down what a union actually means and to be a part of it? Why? Sorry, why would that? So when the so you automatically get signed up, you get given an NUS card, and it, actually, it acts as your student card. It's your ID as when you're at university, but you don't act, you're not actually engaged in the NUS or even your university union at all. Does, do you think that actually waters down what actually to be part of a union is, which is a collective to group yes. together to fight for yeah. things, when actually people are just signed up 
they're just signed up automatically. They're not actually taking the active step of signing themselves up. Yeah. Well, although uh, we have a great relationship with NUS, of course, it's not the same as an independent union, is it? It's government funded, <coughs> although I understand there's a green paper on that and uh, uh, they're going to find themselves perhaps under some of the same pressures that uh, other organizations have faced under this government. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a trade union, it's, it's a body for students. Um, but I would certainly, I don't think becoming automatically a member of something means that you're less likely to be active. Um, in fact, I, I suspect there are people in government who feel that NUS is far too active <laughs> at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think they do a lot of good work. And by the way, of course, it's not just universities anymore. I think if you look at the membership that's in FE of NUS, um, that's very interesting, the way that's grown uh, and become more active. I was at the conference, I think it was a week ago, um, NUS also has thousands of apprentices in membership who also hold a union card too, by the way. Uh, and that's you know, another common interest we have there. Yes, the woman next to the woman who asked the question. <coughs> okay, that's better. Hello, I'm Gillian. I was a student at the LSE uh, 40 years ago. Um, I believe that the TUC is increasingly irrelevant to most people. And I think part of that is a reputation or a brand image, if that's the right way of putting it, of being anti-everybody else and massively combative. I think that it does need rebranding and in a major way. I think it needs to stand for social justice rather than collective bargaining. Lots and lots of young people today don't work in the traditional industries. They work in new media or whatever, and they would like to be bosses at some point. So the starting point of us versus them, workers versus bosses, doesn't resonate with them. They want to do really well. They want to be bosses themselves. They want to lead their field. As long as we stick, or you stick, because I'm not a member of the union, but as long as you stick with the old-fashioned us versus them, then I'm afraid you're on a hiding to nowhere. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's an interesting comment. I mean, I, I, uh, I've never heard of any other membership organization of six million people described as irrelevant. Um, I think that is a term that tends to be uh, applied exclusively to the trade union movement. And sometimes I wish the current government had seen us as irrelevant because they wouldn't have bothered making us top of the list in terms of a bill that, as I said, you know, and other right-wing commentators have noticed, noted, uh, went further than Thatcher ever went in terms of uh, attacking what, again, people across the spectrum have seen as pretty precious civil liberties. So um, I, I don't think we're irrelevant, and uh, clearly the government doesn't think so either. Where I do agree with you um, is that and actually this has been a thread throughout our history, is that we're a social movement too, and social justice has been, always been part of our work. So, you know, a very simple example, we support 
not just financially, uh, hope not hate, the anti-fascist, anti-racist organisation, which uh, made a real difference, I think, in terms of the BNP's prospects in this country. Uh, We've uh, campaigned on a whole range of issues like nurseries, you know, which many women... You can't even get into a job, or not just women, obviously, sorry, uh, parents. If you, you can't get into a job unless you know you've got your childcare sorted. So I think we do have that broader social role. But I personally feel that uh, there has to be a way of holding business to account. It's actually... Uh, we would argue that the most successful businesses in Britain do recognise and collectively bargain with unions. And the reason they're successful is because actually workers, you know, wealth isn't all created in a boardroom. It does take workers too. And if you treat, there's loads of international evidence to show, if you treat workers fairly, if you give them a voice, if they feel engaged, they perform better. And that's ultimately better for the business too. So there's a very good case to be put for collective bargaining. And I think even more so when we are facing now such extreme forms of inequality, not just in society, but right inside individual workplaces too. Okay. Um, Can we have this gentleman with the white shirt... Hello, uh, my name's Dan. Uh, I'm not from any particular organisation this evening. I guess um, my my question is around, you're talking a lot about renewal and getting young people in and workers in the gig economy and workers in the private sector who are low paid, who are traditionally not members of unions. And I sit here and I feel hopeful. Um, but then you spoke a lot about all the problems that unions have got as well, government, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I wondered how you felt about how optimistic you're feeling about the ability of the TUC and union movement as a whole to renew itself and get new members in from all these different places. And specifically, if you've got examples of where that's been successful, so when trade unions are doing new things to get workers who are in the on-demand economy back in membership. Okay. Um, I am an optimist by nature, um, and and I do think there are moments in history where people turn adversity into opportunity. And so, you know, I started with the trade union bill, and I'm sorry, in some ways, that probably dominated too much of my contribution. But actually, it has proved to be this fantastic organizing kind of vehicle for us, and also a real sense of pride. You know, um, you kind of go around the country talking to reps, uh, who have this remarkable resilience. And it's like, oh, I've seen it all before, France. You know, we're, we'll still be here. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> and they're still making a difference in terms of safety on building sites or shop workers getting more flexible hours that suit them, not just uh, the supermarket. You know, I mean, doing wonderful things, making a real difference. So um, I think in terms of kind of some of the innovation and new groups of workers, different approaches, I mean, God, there's... By the way, we organise workers from all walks of life, 
professional workers, uh, you know, climate change scientists, footballers, actors, as well as supermarket workers, cleaners, the whole, you name it, there's somebody who's, you can point to where they're organised. It's, it's the challenge is to scale that up. Um, I think I, I really, I'm really interested in uh, many of the techniques that some of our uh, creative industry unions have been using. Uh, so an industry like TV and film that's become overwhelmingly casualised, you know, uh, uh, absolutely rife with unpaid internships, uh, you know, really simple things, young people's led campaign, uh, organising uh, for interns, uh, texting each other to stop people taking jobs, uh, massive support for those who have got involved in internships, uh, putting it on the public stage, making it an issue, shaming people into the way on, on how people have been treated, pointing out that if you don't come from a well-off family, moving to London and working for free isn't a great option You know, in terms of access to the industry. I think they've put that on the map. Um, I don't know, just even, like, I mentioned deep sea divers because this is one I'm, <laughs> I'm really impressed by. You know, again, you just try and get your head around, how would you organise them? And a lot of that has been internet-based because of the nature of the work that they do. Um, and they got themselves a 90% pay rise, by the way. Incredible. Anyway, um, uh, I don't know, you just, uh, a lot of the work around apprentices, uh, you know, very big government targets on the number of apprentices, uh, some fantastic ones in the car industry and elsewhere. Other places, is this really an apprenticeship? And how much are you getting paid? And how much training are you getting? I mean, there's a lot of organisation going on on that front too. So we've just got to try out different ways, I think. And uh, I'm... We've also working on co-ops, for example. Actually, it's the same collective impulse. There's no reason why trade unionism and co-ops shouldn't go together. There are an awful lot of young people now working in these kind of self-created networks and collectives and co-ops. I think there's, I think that's very interesting. Uh, anyway, so there's lots going on, and would love to share it more afterwards. <laughs> okay, um, the woman at the back. Hello. Um, so I'm an investor in startups uh, started by young millennials, and um, I and it was a very very inspiring lecture. So uh, um, um, I'm, I'm glad I came to this uh, this particular one. But I have to say that I do echo some of the observations that that lady made uh, about the the TUC not really resonating with the young people, and somehow trying to use you know, sort of more traditional approaches to fixing what is an inevitable trend towards uh, casualization or towards more freelance work. And I was also struck by how few millennials or young people there are at this lecture today at the LSE. Um, so I think that, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's because uh, it's exams or, but I think I am struck by, you know, um, how imbalanced it is in terms of the attendance today. Um, so I'm just wondering if the TUC in the first instance is willing to acknowledge that 
it may become irrelevant if it does not address some of the sort of trends related to millennials. So, you know, I think the first step to change is to actually acknowledge and recognize that something is not working. Um. I mean, on the narrow point about the audience, it's, it's unfortunate that it is exam season, so undergraduates and master's students are sort of out of the audience and we're left with the interested public and PhD <laughs> students, which is always an important component of our audience and I'm very grateful for them. Ah, it's quality. So why isn't the interested public younger? That's yeah, well... I just want to reassure you I have I do get out and about <laughs> so um um I'm uh I th- I think if you'd if you'd been at the NUS you might have had a very different vibe about the interest of young people in trade unions because actually it was very strong um listen I think part of what I was saying was we've got to change Uh, and there is a recognition in the trade union movement that we have to change. Uh, So I think we're up for it, and if that hasn't come across, then I'm sorry, because I think that was kind of one of the key messages I wanted to relay. On the other hand, uh, I'm not going to pretend that the fact that uh, we, and in many countries, there is a hostile framework of law for trade unions, that doesn't help us. Um, I'm not going to pretend that uh, the Murdoch media loves us. I'm not going to use that as an excuse, but, you know, we have to be realistic about the challenges we face, what we can control, what we can do, how we can shift um, uh, the way that we live and work, but also that we, we are not alone in facing some pretty tough challenges i think right now we've got a number of people so i I might just take um two or three people um now if you up for that um so um could i have this woman here and then that gentleman at the back and who someone has had their hand up here for a while i think it was you yep um, I'm a member of the National Union of Journalists and I'm sitting here um, and feeling really frustrated by some of the misconceptions people have about trade unions. For example, representing the middle classes, well, most of my colleagues are, and we do. Junior doctors have just been out on strike many times. <coughs> They're certainly not uh, seen as anything other than middle class, at least middle class professionals. Um, new media workers, my union is active, very active in representing new media workers. Um, the freelance sector, freelance journalists in my, sex, in my union are extremely well represented around the table and also in workplaces. If you freelance, you, you freelance to a workplace and therefore you make sure in the workplace that that employer treats those workers fairly. Um, the amount of stuff unions do behind the scenes, which is never even acknowledged because it's sorted, and, and to um, you know, dissolve grievances, to keep bosses aware of some of the concerns, some of the, the pressure points, and for uh, amicable, amicable resolutions to that. So it is quite frustrating and dispiriting for me as an active trade unionist to hear um, such a, a, a poor impression of actually what we all do. And 
and the union is as good as, is as good as its members. So if you have any concerns, what you need to do is join the union and get active, and that's what makes a difference. Whatever class background you come from, and whatever profession you are in. So all that to say, Francis, what do you think can be done to help dispel? So many misconceptions are still, um, you know, are still so very present about the trade union movement. Okay, so misconceptions and the gentleman at the back, yep. Despite the exams, there are also a few students among us, <laughs> but very briefly, um, I wonder, I, I, share, I mean, I share with you that it is very important to organize uh, workers in the service sector and especially in the gig economy. I wonder if you identify as the main obstacle to reach improvements for these workers and to reach collective agreements, um, uh, maybe better collective agree agreements, um, the the missing strength of organizing workers or if it's rather the unwillingness of employers to mm. negotiate with unions? Mm. Okay, so obstacles and this gentleman. Yeah, hello, Eddie O'Sullivan. I'm a superannuated LSE graduate like the lady at the back. Uh, I was a, I've been in the private sector my whole working life. Yeah, hello, Francis. I've uh, been in the uh, private sector all my life at director level as well. And I've got a question, but I just want to make a point that if you feel exploited, you need a union. Simple as that. And the degree of exploitation in the UK economy has never been higher. And worse than that, it's going to get worse because what happened to the taxi drivers today and the retail workers tomorrow is going to happen to the teachers, it's going to happen to the accountants, it's going to happen to the computer. You can see what's happening with the tax havens as well. So I think the, uh, I feel that as a, a retired business person because I could see it happen and I was involved in it to my shame. But I do have a question, which is why shouldn't someone like me, who's retired from the uh, labor force, where I was exploited even though I did quite well out of it, why should I, as someone retired from the labor force as a consumer, not boycott Uber, not boycott these uh, restaurant people, not Baker, the next, which is going to be online healthcare, online doctors uh, being paid £15,000 a year, online teaching, it's online accountants. All the people that are working at the LSE are going to find themselves, I'm very sorry to say, not getting their money back from the amount of money they paid on their education because they are going to be knocked out by Uber and others that are coming down the line. You can see it. But why, why shouldn't I, as a consumer, boycott them? You said I shouldn't boycott Uber. Why not? Eddie, I should start with you because I would never, ever try and tell you not to boycott something. <laughs> but if that's if, but there is there is, currently there is an, an organised boycott of Uber. But what I think you will see to um, begin to unfold, just in the way, in the same way that we did with the Ritzy, it wasn't necessarily about stopping people going in, but it was about using. Uh, people who use that service to really put pressure on the company in different ways. You can, I mean, it could be a boycott or it can be different ways. Public shaming. <laughs> good, good man. <laughs> good man. But, but you're, you're right. I mean, the Living Wage Campaign is perhaps the best known uh, broad alliance that we built that unions were at the start of. We don't always need to be at the front of it, but you know, we were kind of founding partners of that coalition of faith groups and community organizations. Uh, and look what that's 
achieved. Again, you know, not perfect, because if you look at the numbers of workers covered, it's got a long way to go to make a big dent. But in terms of public consciousness and shaming employers, I think it's been quite a powerful alliance that's been built, exactly as we did, this is where we came in, you know, uh, in terms of general unionism, uh, that first uh, wave. So uh, I think we need to relearn some of that art. Uh, this stereotypes issue, what, what more can we do to uh, challenge it? Well, uh, you know, again, I get frustrated when people talk about a male-dominated trade union movement. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, again, not perfect, but around our general council, it's nearly 50-50. And, uh, you know, all the education unions... I think nearly are led by women, the journalists are led by women, equity is led by women, a lot of the finance unions are led by women. Uh, I have experienced a problem sometimes with the mainstream media, not our good friends who are members of the NUJ, but there can be uh, an editorial bias as we've seen in this um, referendum campaign where it seems you know, where are the women in that? As if women have nothing to say and no opinions and no um, locus to say it from. So, that, you know, there can be problems that are not just down to us, but it takes two kind of thing. Uh, but we are doing more, I think, in terms of using social media again. How fantastic. This is our answer, answer to the penny newspaper. Uh, this is cheap. It's mass. We can reach lots of people um, and present uh, the image and the substance of what trade unionism is about in the way that we want to. So, you know, lots of opportunities for us there. And uh, on employers, um, it does take two. And there, there is, I think, um, you can see real strands of different opinion in different groups of employers. Uh, traditionally, I'm not saying this is the whole picture, uh, but there was quite a discernible pattern with American-owned companies that they were more likely uh, not just to resist unions, but in some cases, as we saw very vividly, employ union busters in the way that they would in the States. It's a very big industry. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of the literature that's been used. You vote to, or you join a union and the union gets in here then this place will lose jobs. I mean, it's pretty crude sometimes. Sometimes it's more subtle. That's at one end. At the other end, you know, there are whole areas, again, automotive industry, incredibly mature and constructive relationships. Uh, when I was down at Cowley, uh, the, the top MD literally walks the shop floor with the convener and they are figuring out um, and resolving issues as they walk. I mean, it's real stuff. Uh, so it, a lot of it depends on culture. I mean, we've been arguing, why not have workers on the board in Britain? The majority of other EU member states do. What's so different about Britain? Some of the very same companies that uh, operate here do it quite happily in other parts of Europe. Why, you know, what is that about? Um, and I, I think uh, there can be resistance to what many other people see as plain common sense that, uh, uh, 
you know, we're, we're always going to have distinct interests, however, whatever language you want to use, whether it's us and them or whether it's just a recognition of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, company owners are going to have interests, we're going to have interests, and our job is to get the best deal we can for working people. But it's also possible to create relationships that are mature, respectful, and can deliver for both. So, uh, you know, you see it all, really. Uh, but it, I, think, I think that kind of... Uh, that question of employers, some of them are... One of them said to me, we know we're sitting on top of a volcano. Uh, they know that there is still real public anger and a lack of trust in British corporate life, which is precisely why the CBI launched their initiative about trying to rebuild trust in business. So, you know, here's one way for businesses maybe to start rebuilding their reputations, show your workers some respect, recognise their union. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's been wonderful to hear you set out what you think the sort of context and history we are in at the moment, and then to try and um, characterise what the main things need to be done to renew and reinvent the labour movement. I mean, it's a plastic time, and the question is, can the labour movement, which has so often in the past shaped the times that we live in, can it do so now? And I think it's absolutely right what you say to point to political movements, and there's much discussion of that in the newspaper, but far less discussion of your first point about renewing and reinventing the trade union movement itself, an essential counterbalance and force in the civil society for any plausible realignment in this plastic moment. So thank you very much for setting out your thoughts. Can you join me in thanking our speaker? <laughs>